Today's episode of the RiderFlex podcast is sponsored by our friends at Colorado Startups. Their mission is to connect startups with needed capital and talent to build industry-changing companies in Colorado. They are the largest online community of founders in the state and a great resource for local entrepreneurs building a big company. On today's episode of the RiderFlex podcast, we have founder and CEO Jennifer Henderson of Tilt. They are revolutionizing employee leave in the workplace. Through a web-based platform, their process guides employees and companies through a research-based, inclusive approach to retention, engagement, and effective transitions. I left my dog down here, which I don't normally do. I hope he's okay. He's over there. He's over there. Sometimes my dog goes nuts, Jen. How about yours? You got any dogs around? You are T minus seven days from getting a puppy. We're getting a golden retriever puppy. So we've always Rip. been a dog family and lost ours a couple years ago. So this is our new addition. Okay. So 24 months of a uh, little, little break there. I mean, it takes a little while to get over that, right? It's tough. True. It's true. Yeah. We, I think we, we did the same. Yeah. Took a little break. And I remember my wife was like, I don't, we're never getting another one. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, and then. <laughs> Jen Henderson on the Rider Flex podcast today. How you doing, Jen? It's a good day, Steve. It's a good day. Thank you, you. You you live up in beautiful Fort Collins or outside of town. I, I know right about about where you're at. We won't share your address with the listeners, but I know about where you're at. And so, awesome area, beautiful area. Uh, is that? Are you from Colorado? Because I think you went to CSU. I did. Uh, proud CSU alum, go Rams. Uh, I'm actually a British citizen by birth, so I'm not wow. a Coloradoan. Yeah. Wow. Okay, cool. Tell us about it. Give us the family history. You know, it's uh, this telltale story of two uh, international parents. So my dad worked for Motorola based okay. out of Saudi Arabia. And my mom was an international flight attendant for Pan Am uh, back in the days of weigh-ins and uniforms and very <laughs> posh um, flight attendant days. They did, actually did a show about it, which she obviously was very critical about, but pretty oh. accurate depiction of that, that time period. So anyway. Weigh-ins, like weigh-ins. Like, weigh -ins. like I, I, when you brought that yeah. up just now, I'm like, I actually do remember hearing that. Like, that was real? That's real? Very, <laughs> very real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Holy cow. Uh, yeah. Wow. Okay. So, the, yeah. so was she on a flight? What, what? He was on a flight and she was there and then they met. He's like, Hey, what's your name? How'd, how'd that go? <laughs> Similar. Yeah. Yeah. That was about it. And they just uh, <laughs> found themselves in England about the time that I was born. So I, I got dual citizenship. Very cool. All right. Yeah. When did, when did you move to the States? I was three, three or four. So um, right I, held, to I hold on to the passport, but no, no trace of a, uh, 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 accent. Yep. No accent. I, I was listening. I was listening for it. I was listening for it. <laughs> um, and the, did they move straight to Colorado or did they move around a little bit or what was the story? No, I actually grew up most of my youth in uh, Chicago suburbs. So I'm a big bears fan and Colorado okay. didn't come into the picture till junior high. I see. Okay. Well, at least they didn't move you when you were like a sophomore in high school. Right. No, a little before that. Yeah. Not did, too you go to, did you go to Fort Collins High? Rocky, Rocky Mountain High School. Rocky Mountain High School. Okay, very good. All right. And so at some point you decided to go to CSU. How did you, this communications major, how did you, how did you decide that? Walk me through that. 
Uh, I actually started my collegiate experience at Michigan State University to get a vet med degree. Many people oh. say, why not CSU? But I was ready to go somewhere else when I graduated okay. high school. Okay. So went to Michigan State um, for my first year and uh, hit organic chemistry and decided that vet med was not for me. So <laughs> uh, I walked that back and found communications, which I tell you what, Steve, there is no... Um, bigger fan of her undergrad than myself. I am so glad I got a communications degree. I use it literally every day. Right. It is the best foundational knowledge I could have gotten and hundred percent worth it. So I'm very happy with my degree choice. I couldn't agree more. And I'm not just saying that because I was also a communications major. Uh, <laughs> uh, very similar story. Not the same. Uh, I didn't start out the same. I started out in accounting, accounting and, uh, what happened was I had a friend of mine that got me all the tests for accounting one. So I never, I never studied like I had, I cheated. I'll just go ahead and tell all my alum that from USAO in Oklahoma. Yes. I had the test for accounting one. So I never studied when accounting two came, I was like, Oh shit. Okay. Yeah. I don't know anything now. So now what am I going to do? <laughs> and uh, that's how I got to be a communications major right there. I cheated in accounting one. That's what happened. <laughs> but, to your point, though, awesome degree, right? It really can help you in so many ways. People hear communications major and they're like, oh, did you want to be a news anchor? Like, no, it's so much more than that. It's like, come on. It's not just radio and TV. Yeah, uh, and it's a dying art. I tell you what, I speak to so many people that don't have the basic fundamental communications muscles. And it's, uh, it's a big road to climb later in life. Were you working retail slash Starbucks in college? And then right afterwards, they said, come be a manager for us. Is that how that happened? Pretty much. That's how it happened. Job to pay the bills. I put myself through college. So I worked throughout all five years. I was on the five-year plan. Okay. Uh, and Starbucks was at a really big growth phase. Like, when are they not? But that one in particular, they couldn't staff stores fast enough as they were hiring. So I slid really nicely into a management track and cool. never looked back. I just kind of cool. grew through that organization for almost 12 years. And I, I couldn't be also happier with that choice to have professionally grown up under that brand um, really formed my professional lens in a variety of ways. And how now as an entrepreneur, I'm building my company. I lean on my Starbucks days quite a bit. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Great, great, great training ground. And plus, you know, retail slash restaurant makes you tough. You get grit. I mean, you know, that's a, you know, <laughs> Any, anytime I see somebody that came from that line of work, whether it's restaurant, retail, frontline, you know, yeah. They're, they're, especially if you made it to, from a store manager to a district manager and you moved up, there's something yeah. special. There's something special about those people. And I'm not just saying that because I was also a store <laughs> manager and district manager. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's true. Uh, so at some point, what happened? Did you get recruited away or, or the noodles and co what, what talk to me about the switch to noodles? Yeah, I, uh, was itchy to keep spreading my wings, so to speak, you know, 12 years is a long time to be yeah. under one yeah. brand. And I did get recruited, uh, at that time noodles was a recent IPO. So they were really going through the growing pains of a cultural shift from a private to a public, uh, organization. And obviously that's where I, that, that was my jam. So uh, brought in strategically to help that bridge that gap in an operational capacity. And again, um, found some really nice tailwinds to promote pretty quickly and took over the Western third of the U.S. 
all of a sudden I woke up one day and I was 75% travel and um, it's really wearing for, for those that have lived that life. It's not for the faint of heart. So, uh, and then I became pregnant with my second and there's definitely not a lot of um, synergy between 75% travel and, and expecting <laughs> and having a new child. So now were you already in a corporate position by this? You're a corporate, but travel at that director of operations, were you, because you were brought in then from the field into technically a corporate position then? I, I can't, I don't know how it works. Yeah, that's essentially what it was. With that geography, we reported to a VP um, and then to, to the CEO. So pretty short okay. hierarchy. Um, yeah, but the corporate office was here in Colorado, out of Broomfield, still mm -hmm. is to this day. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So a lot of time spent there as well, as well as on it the road. Isn't it interesting how when you meet young people in their career and they, they just think sexy, they think travel so sexy and cool and like, oh my God, we get to travel. And I always look at them and go, yeah, call, call me in a couple of years. Yeah, when, you, when, when, you get, when you get sick of how the airplane smells and you, yeah. get, and you get disgusted with every hotel you check into, no matter yes. whether it's four star or not, then, then call me. Yes. I was one of those people. I, I, I'll admit it. I thought it was totally sexy and exciting and uh, rack up all the frequent flyer miles. Well, the problem is you have all the frequent flyer miles. And the last thing you feel like doing is getting out of sleep in a hotel when you're not working. Exactly. It was so bad. I, I'll just tell you this real quick. At the end, I think I had flown 130,000 miles like three years in a row. It was so bad in the end. I had this little thing of mentholatum, you know, the mentholatum you rub on your chest when you have a cold. Mm -hmm. I was so sick of the smells of everything. This is how burned out I was. I would take mentholatum and I would put a little bit like underneath oh. my nose in my car before I'd go into the airport. That's how bad it was. My wife's like, you need to, you need to do something else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty good sign. Something needs to change. <laughs> okay, so, so then you're, you're director of ops. You're, you're having a great career, had a second child mm -hmm. or was about to. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then what? Then then walk us through what happens. Is is this when the entrepreneurial stuff starts to bake a little bit, or walk us through that transition? Go ahead. This is the origin story for Tilt. Yeah, go for it. So, uh, <laughs> if we go back in time a little bit to Starbucks days, um, I went through seven years of in vitro with my husband to get pregnant, and we went through several lost pregnancies, several failed cycles. And all of that lack of control for seven years of not being able to do what I felt biologically we were just supposed to be able to do so easily. And of course, everyone around me is getting pregnant so easily mm. by accident and I wanted to punch it in the face. Mm -hmm. um, I channeled all of that frustration and lack of control into my career. So that really poured fuel on the fire. I took every stretch assignment I could. I took every opportunity I could and I got really comfortable sitting at that table, right? Mm -hmm. Sitting at that top of the nine box table, the, mm -hmm. the top of the growth list. And when I announced that I was expecting, uh, I l quite literally stopped getting invited to that table. Uh, and it was devastating for me because that was a big part of my identity. And uh, at the time, I was so elated to just be pregnant after what we'd gone through. I loved the company. Uh, I turned the other cheek and I just said, well, it's really unfortunate, but let me pull up my big girl pants and, and get back on my ladder and, and grow and try to rebuild my career trajectory. And did you get demoted? Did, did you get demoted or, or what? Ha so, so what I heard you say there was you were moving up. You were getting to go to the big leadership meetings. You told yeah. people that you were expecting. 
you yeah. stopped you stopped you stopped getting invited to some things did you also get uh moved in position or responsibility at that time i didn't get moved i didn't get demoted but all of a sudden everything started looking different so mm. performance started getting called into question literally oh. overnight oh really uh, yeah yeah wow. i put in wow. a transfer because i needed to um relocate due to some family needs with older parents and that was just i just really quickly learned the advocates that i'd surround myself with it just they evaporated i wow. i just didn't have the same place in that organization that i had had before and i was mm. being looked at very very differently mm. so mm. um yeah it was that's, really tough that sucks that sucks because it was a wonderful time for you and your husband obviously you know you're elated after all those years it should be like yeah. one of the most it's, it's like the happiest time in your life personally yeah. It sucks. It sucks that then on the professional side, you're like, "What the hell's going on over here? Like, what, you guys are supposed to be happy for me. What? What? What is this? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. It was Oof. my first experience in what I obviously now um, call myself an expert in, which is uh, maternal bias, mm. um, discrimination mm. in the workplace, and I, it was it was my first uh, awakening that that's even a thing. It wasn't even on my radar. Did you, quit, did, did you eventually quit or what happened? Yeah, so that obviously um, caused me to become more aware of other opportunities. And, okay. Uh, okay. you know, my light was on, so to speak, to, to kind of use, uh, I think it was a friend's mm -hmm. analogy. So when I, when I was recruited, because you get recruited pretty often, mm -hmm. um, especially from Starbucks. It's a pretty well sought after brand. So I'd get offers pretty frequently. And this one, when I was recruited to Noodles, just checked a lot of boxes and I was open to it. So mm -hmm. I walked through that door um, and again, got back into that seat, the table promoted really quickly, really saw some nice momentum in my career again. And then I became pregnant again, this time, not through IVF, naturally surprise pregnant. Um, okay. okay. I call her our bonus baby. And, <laughs> that's uh, that's wonderful. Time, yeah. So this time when I announced, uh, I was up for that VP position and those conversations stopped. The promotion ev evaporated. So that was enough. That, that time that it happened again for someone who so passionately threw herself into her career, mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. that was my breaking point. I did gotcha. seek counsel. I did have a case. I didn't want to sell my story. I didn't want to sign the gag orders. And I really saw it as short-term gain. Long-term, nothing was going to change. Mm. So I walked away from the litigation route. I, um, I was really vacillating on, do I jump into this wild, wild world of entrepreneurship or to stick it out? And I was sitting in a seminar. I'll never forget this experience. I was sitting in a seminar at a galvanized campus in Boulder. And I was listening to this woman give a leadership talk, women in the workplace, something along those lines. And she said a statistic, she said, women will incur a 30 to 40% earning reduction over their lifetime if they opt out of the workforce for anything more than two years, anything more than two years for caregiving, for kids, for elderly parents, you name it, 30 to 40%. At wow. that time, I'd been the primary breadwinner for my family. And that statistic, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. My hand shot up and I said, can you please say that again? And can you cite your source? And she did. And it was from Cheryl Sandberg's research for Lean In. And uh, that was it. That was my decision to say, I can't sit back. This is ridiculous. I'm jumping out I put in my resignation um, and I started I filed the LLC for tilt four months after I gave birth to my to my daughter 
Okay. Now that is very inspirational. What about the financial piece? All of a sudden uh, you're the breadwinner and all of a sudden you're like, uh, I'm sure your husband is championing your, your cause and he's behind you, but at the same time, you've got to be looking at the checkbook going, okay, well, yeah, but now I'm not getting paid. <laughs> right. I mean, wonderful what you're doing there. Talk to me about that. How did you manage that? Uh, six figures to zero figures is a long way to fall. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> uh, that stung big time. And I come from, uh, I was raised by a single mom, so we were not always well off. We were never well off. And, and, um, that financial insecurity is baked into my bones. My husband calls me cheap. I say it's frugal. So I'm always really well aware of uh, the fiduciary responsibilities of my family. So it was really hard, really, really hard for me to say, we're going to live off. My husband is a firefighter. Okay. He also doesn't make millions. Um, <laughs> right. We live off one income and we're going to figure it out. And that, that statement that you made that he was a champion is the understatement of the century. He has been the most unwavering cheerleader through this crazy roller coaster of entrepreneurship. <laughs> Honest to God, I could not do it if I, if the tables were turned. It's That's... it's amazing to me how he's stood beside all the ups downs, <laughs> diminishing uh, bank accounts, big checks for MVPs, all of that financial. Yeah. If you just uh, if the listeners, we'll just take a pause right there. If you're thinking about starting your own business you better make damn sure that your spouse, partner, whatever is behind you 100% because they have to be, or it will not work. It's going to cause all kinds of problems. Uh, just, they ha you have to go into it together. You just have to. <laughs> it's so critical. So two things I want to punctuate on that. One is in hindsight, I honestly think the in vitro journey prepared us for it okay. in this crazy way world. In this crazy roundabout way, we had, been in that foxhole together and taken so many blows that we became really, really strong. And that mm. helped with this entrepreneurial journey. And mm. I am a absolute flag waving t-shirt wearing fan of marriage counseling. <laughs> we would definitely not be married today if we didn't uh, have years and years of marriage counseling. Now, okay, we, we, I, look at, we look I, at it like going to the dentist, like go get a tune up. Like I, this stigma around it is such BS. Like, we all just are trying to be better. So go get help to be better. So we, you, we love. Yeah. I love, okay. Now I love that. I don't want to get too personal, but I have to ask you. So I, I'm just imagining that trying to talk a macho fighter fighter into going to like, like trying to talk a fireman into going to marriage counseling. I don't see that as being easy. Like I, my head would be like, you know, I don't know. They're just too, I'm too macho for that or whatever. The normal fireman, maybe not your husband. Yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely hit the jackpot. My husband is um, unique wow. in a lot of ways, but is you know, he in the back? Is he in the is he in the background? Can we get him? Can we, can we get his face on the podcast? <laughs> fire right now, selfish jerk, going and saving the world. Um, wow, that's yeah. that's so awesome. I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and it's unfortunate. It is a very it has a huge stigma associated with it, and in the machismo and, and yes. culture yes. of firefighting. Um, I'm a very outspoken fire wife in that, that lack of mental wellness, uh, support is catastrophic for fire family. There's, there's a 70% divorce rate in the fire community. Like it's a really tough culture to be married in and they've mm -hmm. got to, um, 
destigmatize that mental wellness like yesterday. So uh, co combined with the fact that I don't know entrepreneurial couples, there's probably a huge high <laughs> rate of divorce in that too. So you guys got both of those plus yeah. you went through the 17 years of not being able to have a child, which is also super astra. I mean, holy cow! That you guys have married for life now. I mean, there's nothing that can even phase you at this point. You know, little you probably meet other couples that have little problems, and you're like, okay, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry you. <laughs> I'm sorry you can't decide on what couch you want to get. <laughs> oh, trust me, we still we still have our blows and our knockdowns, but yeah, it's uh, been through some wars. I really appreciate you sharing that. Okay, so you now when you made this decision to resign, did you know? Had you formulated in your head what you wanted to? I mean, I think you had a mission, but did you know exactly how you were going to set it up? Talk to me about that. For sure, no, nope, okay. hundred percent did not know. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. I'd never been an entrepreneur. I did not come from a family of entrepreneurs. I threw myself into every podcast, book, webinar I could possibly get my hands on. I had a friend that was going through uh, Marie Forleo's B School and I stole all her notes and I, and I read all of that, those worksheets. And um, I originally just set out to make I really remember saying, I want to make managers suck less. Like I, I want to make this world of work. This at that point, I remember statistics of like 70% of workers are disengaged from their jobs and like, probably. I mean, just really sad statistics and where people are spending so much of their time. And so as I, as I continue to iterate and learn and, and um, talk to people, this, kind of perfect marriage of my experience with what I went through when I disclosed my pregnancies in addition to um, some of the greater leave conversations and where tilt sits today in the leave alignment space I like to call it just just naturally emerged and um, I saw a really compelling space to build a solution and then okay. I went and tested it and all the other things well, well you're drawing this up on paper what are you thinking now is this going to be a SaaS company a tech company a health and wellness company all I'd combined love, <laughs> yeah, i'd love to say i had that type of clarity i didn't know i didn't even know the difference between a lifestyle company and a vc backed company <laughs> i SaaS companies i had to google i mean i was so naive to this space i had a lot of um swagger from my operational background. I was like, God, I've, I've run multi-million dollar entities. Yeah, right. I know PNLs inside and out. I know how to hire, fire and develop teams. I got this. Like I'm just taking that formula and I'm plugging it into my own company. Holy crap. Was I wrong? Right. <laughs> Proformas are so different from PNLs. Building a, a team from scratch is so different than bringing a team into an existing infrastructure. Like very humbling experience. Yes, Very let's take let's take a pause right there. So for all of you regional vice presidents out there that are sending me your resume saying I am in charge of two hundred million dollars of responsibility. Yep. No, no, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. You work for a billion dollar company that backs you in all kinds of ways, and you're not really totally in charge of two hundred million because when you're the captain of everything, mm -hmm. it's it's a whole different ball game, just like you described. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's do this. How about you give us a give us the elevator pitch for Tilt right now? You just give it to us for the people that have no idea what we're talking about. Go for it. 
Sure, yeah. Tilt Talent and Leave Technology. We are a leave administration tool that streamlines the leave experience for employees within organizations. Okay, very good. And and talk to us. Is it like you're selling to companies? Mm-hmm. They're buying. How does the business model work? Go for it. Yeah. You think of the way that TurboTax approaches taxes, right? They really uh, decoupled this very fear-inducing, very complex, really um, gross process, and they streamlined it through this really nice user interface. Mm -hmm. You have the steps that you follow that are all clearly explained. You have the form fields. It just, it handholds you through the entire Mm -hmm. life cycle. We've done that same exact methodology through a leave. So anyone out there in your listening audience that's gone through leave, disability, parental, COVID-19 leave perhaps, there is some compliance components to it. You got to fill out certain forms and file them certain times. Um, And that's usually where leave administrators start and stop, right? Check the box, cross the T, dot the I. That's only where tilt starts. So we get all that junk done. And then we bring the human side into the leave. So you're going on a COVID-19 leave. What do you need to know? What are your rights and responsibilities? What resources can you be plugged into? What communities are there? How do you self-select educational materials? And your manager is brought through. So your manager goes through the same exact hand-holding methodology, the same exact support and education that you're going through as an employee going to or going out on leave. Um, that's a critical differentiator because we know through experience and research, if managers don't have a seat at that table and a really key part of a leave, you're leaving yourself completely exposed to a bad experience and ultimately losing that talent. Is this a, is this an add-on or a plug-in for the, for the insurance policy that companies have already? How does that work? Yeah, we often get that question, where do we complement versus replace current systems? And the short answer is it depends. So if you have an organization who's working on the insurance and short-term disability providers, for instance, um, we don't replace that. Uh, We are the essentially the hub of all things leave related. So we'll help facilitate the payroll calculations that are coming from those short-term disability providers in addition to the potentially the state entity, if you're in a state that has passed paid leave. Um, So we act as that um, kind of nerve center for everything leave related. Where we do integrate with and and most of the time replace is if you're in an organization that's using an HRIS system or a payroll system that has a leave component as kind of that um, auxiliary benefit, right? It's, It's kind of always shoved into the bottom of the table of contents and you got to kind of navigate through three screens to get there and again it's check the box it's did you file this paperwork yes no maybe when will you be gone from work goodbye like that's it so that's very transactional very transactional very transactional okay very cold very inhumane just broken Mm -hmm. just Mm -hmm. broken okay so your target then is fortune 500 all the way down to small business or how, how, do you, how are you deciding who to go after? Yeah, there's a very surgical approach to that. And there's uh, two answers to that question. The first half of 2020, when COVID really went sideways, we adjusted all of our target marketing to companies under 500 employees because okay. overnight they had to comply with legislation that was written that said, if you have a, a COVID-related leave, you have to do that as an organization. You have to pay for it, you have to track it. So overnight, the pain point went through the roof 
and we directed all of our messaging and sales outreach to that population. And it worked really well for us. We, we signed a lot of clients and that was great. Good, good, awesome. Now we want higher ACVs, we want higher contracts. We're targeting that 500 to 1500 employee count population, uh, which is really positioning us to get ready for next year where we start to sell into enterprise. Okay. Okay, so pretend like I'm the uh, chief human resource officer and you're pitching me, you're pitching me on this. Yeah. I'm, I guess my question is, you're, you're going to tell me how wonderful the program is because it, it sounds like we obviously, we obviously need this and it helps people and it makes the whole thing better for everybody. And it make it, to your point, it keeps us from having asshole managers that, you know, treat mm -hmm. people like crap that are going on leave. So that all sounds wonderful. Yeah. As the chief HR person, I'm like, okay, that sounds cool. How much does this cost? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, that has to come up, right? Because the CFO or the, the, the bean counters are going to be like, okay, yeah, this sounds great. How much is this? Um, yeah. it, it, walk me through, is it like uh, per employee or how, how are you packaging it? Yeah. So I entered the market. We, we've been selling this product in, in the markets for one year exactly. We launched it August of last year. Okay. I took the advice of a first time founder where people say, if you can't sell your product, you can't expect anyone else to sell your product. So I was the salesperson along with my COO for those, for that first quarter, I would say quarter and a half. So I went into these sales conversations, um, saying, well, shit, I used to be an operator. I don't want these people to pay for seats that are never going to use tilt, meaning that price per employee model in your typical SaaS organization didn't apply to tilt. We're not I going see. to serve the entire right, employee right, population. Right, so I'm like, right, okay. screw it. Let's just do a price per leave model. You just pay for the leaves that okay. we support. Okay. Turns out CFOs hate that because there's too much variability in the pricing and they can't anticipate your quarterly payments essentially. Oh, 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 oh I see. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Yeah. So that went out the window right away. So then we went to more traditional SaaS model and said, all right, monthly subscription fee based on employee population, anticipated leave run rate, whether you know it internally or we just know the macro level numbers. Okay. Um, we identify what that's going to be. One-time implementation. There you go. You're off to the races, monthly payments. Monthly uh, payments. First, okay. Yeah. The first uh, contracts that are signed are still on that payment today. But now we've really solidly changed to annual contracts. Uh, One-time implementation, you pay based on employee population size, and that's it. Simple, clean, pay up front. Yeah. Very good. What, what roadblocks are you hitting? The people that are saying no, why are they saying no? Yeah, so you mentioned earlier, and it goes without saying, HR is a, is a cost um, uh, in an organization. It's a cost center. There's no revenue that <laughs> HR is generating. Nope. So... Uh, they definitely have the constraints of budgetary considerations. And when there's downsizing, that's the first place they go, right? And I saw that day, year after year after year in, in industry. So the other barrier that we come up against is we're not replacing a current line item. We are an additional cost to that cost center. So we really need to be locked and loaded in our ROI. And so those ROI, ROI calculations are... Uh, varied. So what I mean by that is at the end of the day, we are showing proof of, of concept for additional retention. So when we know 40% of women down, downshift or opt out of the workforce after having kids, we know there's a 10x amplification of um, employees um, in, interpretation of their organization when they're going through a life event like a leave. So they're, they're holding their employer 10x more accountable than they normally would when they're going through that. 
we can draw all those lines to here's your risk of cost doing this wrong. Here's your missed manage okay. cost risk. And then we can say, here's your tilt contract. And trust me, it's like 10 X less expensive. Then we can talk through the second layer of ROI, which is the litigation risk. And we can point to all of the, this is a very noisy topic. So we can point to all of these companies mm -hmm. who have um, had cases brought against them for, again, how this has gone wrong. And we can mm -hmm. say, this is how Tilt specifically addresses this proactively to drastically diminish your risk of that type of litigation. Now, HR should then, love that. HR should love that because I know as a former CEO, and all of my HR friends are going to get really pissed when I say this. I used to tell HR when I would get upset about something, I would, I would say, look, your job is to make sure we don't get sued. So go make sure that happens. hundred <laughs> percent. It is. I say that all the time with all the love I have for my HR partners I've worked with. Yeah, throughout me too. Life. Me too. My love too. My love oh to my all God. of you guys too, but really just make sure we don't get sued. <laughs> that's their job. And that's what I keep saying is these employees that say, oh, I don't trust HR or HR is not. <laughs> no, their job is to protect the company. That is why yep. they have a paycheck. Yes. So anyway. Um, <laughs> okay. That's a good selling point though. So now you're telling me, yeah. Hey, listen, here's all the, here's the ROI. Here's how you're going to make this money back. And yeah. you probably, well, you've only been selling for a year. Pretty soon you'll have a bunch of cases that you can show, right? Like, yeah. Hey, this customer was a client for us for three years. They saved this. When you have that, then, then your sales, you know, your sales uh, process goes up even higher because now you got some stats to, to point to, which is great. And the last thing that I'll say there, and this is just a total nod to my C-suite partners out there because I get it, is there's that EPLI component of a business model where you're um, protecting your company for those litigation cases, right? When you have discrimination or um, sexual mm -hmm. harassment cases brought to you. When we're able to go to those EPLI providers and say, great, here are the companies that you're providing coverage for and we, and they have tilt internally, look at how much we've reduced their occurrence of cases. So mm -hmm. subsequently, let's go ahead and reduce their premiums as well. So now we are getting HR as close to that North Star. I had a CHRO once tell me, if you can give me something that's going to make me revenue producing or as damn close to revenue producing as possible, show me where to sign I'm in all day long. Yeah. So again, we're building mm -hmm. that business model and those ROIs to get as damn close as we can <laughs> to them that revenue producing. Very, very good. Okay. Now, is this all, um, is this, a, is this, are there people that I talk to or it's all online? It's all bots and, and a SaaS model. What does it feel like if I'm using it? Yeah. So we're building for scale, which means we need as very few friction points as possible as minimal friction points. So okay. Okay. the answer to that is there's a lot of machine learning and a lot of okay. automation built into the technology. However, we have an incredible CS team, customer success team, because okay. we are dealing with humans and humans invariably are unpredictable and uh, there's going to be edge cases. So we will never be a 100% SaaS automated technology okay. company. We will okay. always have a human component of it because yeah. number one, we're bringing human back to leave. It would be a little off culture if we didn't have any human interaction. Right. And number two, yeah, we're going to get those edge cases and we know it. So, okay. Okay. Very good. So now, now to build a SaaS company, a tech company, that takes money. You got to pay developers. How did you fund all this? What, what did you bootstrap this whole thing? Have you gone out and got some angel money, some seed money? Talk to us about how you, you built it there. 
Yes, that is uh, the understatement of the century. Building technology is so expensive. Uh, I bootstrapped for two years. I did a lot of side hustles. I did consulting. Um, I was a career coach for Olympians. Like I, I did it all to, to just get some money in the bank to help continue to bootstrap this, write the big MVP check that I mentioned earlier, um, do the beta tests and all those things. And then um, we raised a small angel round the end of 2019. Congratulations. Uh, Good. Thanks. That was, that was a, because that was pre-revenue. I, hats off to any of your audiences trying to raise capital pre-revenue. That was a rough experience for me. Uh, right. That's another hour podcast. How many, how many no's, how many no's did you get before somebody finally wrote you a check? A bunch? 113. Oh, you counted them. 113. Oh, I still have my spreadsheet. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. 113. Hey, please give me an angel check before you finally got somebody to say yes. Wow. Let that sink in listeners. There you go. (laughs) And you, and you, and you were an operations executive, right? And we can't, we're very similar uh, career paths. And so I know what an operations person is. An operations person is, Hey, I got my spreadsheet. This meeting's happening. Boom, boom, boom. Right. Yeah. You're not worried about, okay, I got to sell. Now you're learning how to sell. I got to make sure this person likes us. I got to figure out how to convince them. Woo, you turned yourself into a salesperson. Oh, uh, mediocre at best, trust me. (laughs) Did you have a partner? Did you have a a co-founder? Nope. No, solo founder. Wow. Um, Which, quite honestly, I think that whole identification is bullshit because there's seven of us today. These guys are, I wouldn't be here without this team. Got, so, gotcha. Okay. Solo gotcha. founder, founding team, like on are paper, you, I'm a solo founder. Are you, still ta- are you still talking these seven people into working for some sort of equity play or there's actually payroll flowing out the door now? We are actually paying people. Now. All right. Yeah. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> I'm going to guess that you had to talk a couple of developers early on. You were like, listen, I need you to build this thing for me. I can't really pay you right now there's an equity play in it and you know, I might pay you someday if we get this shit working. So come on, just come help me. Were there some of those conversations? It's like you were on the phone with me for that exact (laughs) conversation. Yes. His name is James Nally. That's exactly what I said to him. And I wore him down. I I joke all the time. He for a year really operated as a fractional CTO advisor, meaning he just kept saying no to me. That's all he kept saying was, you're not ready. You're not ready. You're not ready. You're not ready. And for a year, I just kept saying, how about now? How about now? How about now? <laughs> awesome. And uh, it's and funny. I, I got to tell the story because your listeners will probably go for it. I did every pitch competition in the world, right? Young, scrappy, first time founder, you sign up for all the shit. All of it. Yep. So I was on stages left, right, and center, pitching this, pitching this. And I won a couple. And one of the ones I won, part of the prize pack was uh, like, Oh, $10,000 or something ridiculously big that I thought was a product dev award. Like I thought I got it. I got my shop now. I can at least get an MVP or something built that I can sell. And Seamus having been my like noisy, squeaky advisor, CTO who kept saying no to me, he's like, why don't I just go to the meeting with you? Like see what this guy's all about. Yes. Um, yes. You know, yes, please come, come along. Yeah, yeah. Like tell you the questions to ask. Cause I, I did, I was, I don't know. I don't know what I should and shouldn't know. See around the corners, blah, blah, blah. So he came and this shop that gave me that shall remain unnamed that gave me this award was such shit that Seamus walked out of that room with me and he looks and he said, all right, 
I'm going to build it. That's it. I can't, I can't even, I'm, I'm going to do it. Let's figure it out. We'll, we'll get creative. Wow. Good um, for him. Good for him. Is he still with you? Still there? Still, is he on the team? You know, we brought it in house. So we outsourced with him and his team for the first year, six months okay. year. And then we hit, you know, capacity. We needed to bring Devin internal. So three months ago we brought in a, an internal CTO. But I'm, I'm sure you tried to talk him into coming in house. He just didn't, he's got his own thing going on or whatever. You know, uh, another founder here in Fort Collins who I love dearly, uh, Sarnan, the, the founder and CEO of Turbo Tenant, bought the whole damn shop. So he brought Seamus and his team into his uh, startup, oh. lock, stock, and barrel. So, like, we didn't even get a choice. So he has a home now. <laughs> okay, so you're today, you got how many employees? Seven. Seven, Seven developers as well. Are Seven. you... Are you burning through, are you burning cash? Or are you actually hitting profitability? And if you are hitting profitability, are you paying yourself? Where are you at? We are not profitable. Um, no, we uh, aren't far, but that's not really the model we're going after right now. Is anyone who's taken on venture funding has told you, you really need to yeah. hit the spend um, for the investors to propel us for the next race, which we're going to do next year. We're closing a seed around uh, next Friday, T minus oh. nine days. Oh, you are. Oh, all right. Oh, cool. Yeah. Very cool. All right. all right. You can't tell us how much. No. Well, no, I don't think I can because everything's okay. still in the little hands, but substantially more than we did with the angel round. Um, now you're so becoming, yeah. now, now you're becoming an expert at raising cash or you're becoming an expert salesperson. Like, wow, you, you, you're learning all this stuff. You're pitching contest winner. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of bruises. Trust me. We could, spend this whole time talking about all the things I now, got rejected from. Now, when you get the seed round, now you're not going to have to give up control, are you? You're not, you're not, you're not taking up. Okay. Mm -mm. Okay. Okay. Good. Nope. Good for you. Good for you. Mm -mm. No, but we've got some big, beautiful institutional funds on the cap table now and Sweet. real investors and like those angels will forever and always be truly that they, they believed yeah. in a hope and a dream and they trusted in me. Now we're talking to funds that this is what they do and this is how they yeah. do it. So it's a whole different ball field. And I'll tell you, it's been a very different fundraising experience this time around. When you've got revenue coming in, when you've got proof of concept, they, that old adage of smelling blood in the water has been very true for us. We really? are 4X oversubscribed on our round and I'm having to tell some funds, sorry, we don't want your money. Wow. Wow. You could, oh, how about that? Good for you. That, that's so awesome. Now, have you replaced that income you walked away from yet? Are you able to pay yourself what you were paying yourself when you put in your resignation? Not back to that level yet, but certainly more than I have in the last three years. So <laughs> yeah. Well, cause the first year it was nothing. <laughs> yes, that is true. <laughs> I've told this story before on the podcast, but I'll never forget when I told my wife, I said, listen, I, I'm going to, we're going to do Riderflex full time. I'm going to make Riderflex full time. We're going to turn it into a recruiting firm. I'm going to, leave this consulting gig I got. She's like, okay, that's, that's great. She goes, how much is that going to pay us next year? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, uh, maybe nothing. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. So Our you houses deserve medals. Oh I think my that. gosh. Yes. Yes. Well, I'm so glad that you're, you're, you're paying yourself now decent salary, maybe not back to where you were. You raised some cash. You're about to raise some more. Yeah. The only reason you're not profitable, you could probably make the P&L profitable if you wanted to, but you're in scale-up mode, right? So, mm -hmm. great. You got employees. 
People are saying yes to your product. Wasn't we didn't talk about that? We didn't talk about the very first contract that was signed when the very first check hit your bank. I bet that were you like, holy shit, somebody actually wrote us a check for the product. <laughs> I was driving to Target with my two kids in the back seat and I screamed bloody murder and I thought they were going to like shit their pants. They were yes. freaked. I would, I'll never forget it. Yes, that first, yes, that first contract, that first check it creates a whole new experience for this thing, this like idea that is now, it's now a company. So yes, I'll, I'll always remember that too. It's like a drug almost. I tell people, I'm like, look, until you've been an entrepreneur, until you've gone through the hell that it takes to build something and actually get a stranger to write you a check, until you have that feel, you just, I can't even describe what it feels like. It's just, it's, it's unbelievable. And then once you have that feeling, you're like, oh, wow, I got, I need more of that. <laughs> I don't know. That's the part I'm still holding out my opinion on because maybe it's like childbirth where you forget the agony and then everything just rainbows, <laughs> but I'm still too close to it to be like, whatever these serial entrepreneurs are smoking, I don't get it. Cause right. it's been so hard. <laughs> I can't imagine starting over again. I just, yeah, we'll everybody, everybody has that false sense of reality. You know, they watch these movies or whatever. They hear about the 1% of the people that got a big check and, oh, they only worked on it for a couple of years and then they got bought by somebody. I mean, that is the chances of that happening to you if you're going to be an entrepreneur are so slim. It's like winning the lottery. I mean, it, that's not going to happen to you if you start your own business. You're going you're gonna to go through several years of hell. Uh, I mean, hell, and it's going to be a hundred times harder than being an employee. Being an employee is easy. Yes. <laughs> yes. So much. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, so, so for the listeners, and I want to hit you with a couple of wrap up questions. I know we're running out of time. So it's, it's tilt is the name of the company, but it's our tilt.com is the URL, right? Correct. And anybody that's interested, any HR or CFO or CEO listening that wants that product, wants to make a better workplace for their employees, they go to OurTilt.com. Is that the best thing for them to do? They can do that or reach out to me directly, Jen, at OurTilt, either or. Okay. All right. Very good. You know, by the way, those bosses that were assholes to you at the two companies, are they? I hope they're like, they're gone, aren't they? Like bad shit has happened to them, I hope. Do you know? Uh, I, I do believe they're both gone. Um, and I, I'm not sure where they're at today, but I, I'm a pretty big believer in karma. So Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. They probably see you on LinkedIn now. And they're like, damn it. She's, now she's building her own damn company. Matter of fact, they probably want to call you and say, listen, I'm responsible for you building your company because if I hadn't been an <laughs> asshole, you never would have done it. <laughs> Here you go. I do. Oh, man. Uh, you know, I was fortunate. I'm guessing you had some good bosses too. I, I was fortunate to have lots of good ones. I did have a couple of bad ones though. And when you do get a bad one, it's a nightmare. Yeah. I feel for, I feel for people that have had them. Oh, I had several good bosses. I, I am the businesswoman I am today because of those leaders. And, uh, you know, the, the proverbial, you learn more from the bad ones than the good ones. But what I saw really interesting phenomenon is a bad boss can take a job, a role, a day in and day out, something you love to your core, and they can completely flip it on its head. A bad boss can ruin the right person in the right seat on the bus, which again, going back to the original idea of I just want to make managers suck less is because I saw that happen again and again. And it's just, it's sad. It's really sad to me. It is. It so. is. When you, when you walk into a Starbucks today, 
do you like walk in and immediately start dissecting everything? Or are you like, I see a light bulb out over there. Oh, I see there's a cobweb in that corner over there. You, you just, you immediately dissect it, don't you? <laughs> 100%. I have nothing but love for that brand, but you can't pull the operator out of me all forever. Yeah. Someday wife- I have to sit down with a cup of coffee with Howard Schultz and really make sure he knows how much I appreciate his company for turning me into who I am today. Like, That's a nice compliment. I'm, I'm the same, by the way, if I go into a, an operation, a retail operation and I'm, I'm with my wife, Kim, you know, I'll just, she'll, she'll just look over and she'll be like, she'll just say, stop, just will you please stop. I don't want, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> I still to this day get emails from my friends saying, Hey, I went to this Starbucks on such and such and such city. And this is what they got wrong. Like I still have any ability, like I ever had any ability to change. That. I'm always the if you had to give a couple of uh, parting shots here to, you know, the aspiring entrepreneur, they're thinking about starting a business because they're in a terrible situation. They're working for a bad company or a bad boss and they want to start something. Anything you want to share with them here? Besides don't do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, the advice I always give is that if you don't have a reason, if, if your why, to, to quote Simon Sinek, right, if your internal why to start that company is not baked into your bones, like you don't, you don't see it as a job. You see it as something that you have so intrinsically part of your DNA, you're, it's either going to be a really, really, really tough road to climb or you're not going to make it. I had somebody tell me once, if you want to know what you're passionate about, like that it gets thrown around all the time. What are you, what are you just Googling? What are you um, seeing your search history? What are you when you're mm-hmm. bored and just playing on your phone? What mm-hmm. are you naturally drawn to in your feeds or your news, news apps and channels? And it's true. Like I, on my Sunday mornings, I'm reading New York Times articles about um, the maternal bias. So that type of intrinsic, uh, I say passion, I want a different word for it. Um, My why for this has kept Mm -hmm. me going through so many lows, so many valleys, so many times where I've said, F this, I'm going back to be that employee. It's easier, it's more money. It's just, it's not, this is too hard. But that like internal consternation that I'll die on this hill, I don't know how founders who don't have that level of um, connection make it. I truly don't know how they make it. I I totally agree. Couldn't agree more. Last question here. You may have heard me ask other uh, guests that have come on the show. I really love uh, for everybody to to put their core purpose in life into a sentence if they can. Now, did you, is it two daughters? Is it, is it two daughters? One One of you. One of you. Sorry. Okay. Uh, Let's set aside the, the cool, awesome firemen and the, and the two wonderful children over here, as in we already know they're the top priority and they're the main core purpose in life. But aside from them, if you had to put your, your life into a sentence or your core purpose into a sentence professionally, what does that sound like? Oof. Uh, no pressure. Um, changing the, changing the future of work. Okay. Uh, Yeah. I thought you were going to repeat. I thought you were going to repeat what you said er- earlier, which is uh, uh, make make managers suck less. Is that what the, is that it? Did I get it right? Yeah, you got it. You got it. I asked my team if we could make that our motto, our, our tilt, making managers suck less, but they didn't. They didn't adopt that. But yeah, it's we we um, are 
the generation emerging, the generation taking leadership positions is in such an incredible position to change the narrative on really prehistoric philosophies and approaches to business it, in a lot of ways. COVID has done a lot of great things for that change in mindset. So um, I think there's a lot of cool stuff to come and to be part of that disruption. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty cool place to be right now. You know, I didn't say this earlier. I want to say this on the way out here. You know, your product is not just making the family and situation better, the work situation better. It's not just helping people. Um, but but the, how I can relate to it a little bit is being being a 30 plus year manager myself and a CEO of a couple of $40 million companies. You're right. You're educating a manager or a supervisor how to think properly long term. What happens in their brain is the short term. They're like, oh, shit. Okay, Mary's going to be gone for several months. Hell, all right. That's going to cost me this. That's what do I do? Who's going to supervise the team? Oh, my God, we're going to miss out. All this stuff's going to go wrong when she's out. Okay, yeah. So they just immediately go into the selfish short-term thinking. Yes, yes. And, and they don't think about the long-term and the ROI and everything else that you described. And so – you said prehistoric, prehistoric. I like that. You know, yeah, they, they get get out of their prehistoric short-term situation. It's so much more valuable than this little short-term thing you're looking at. If you'll just do the right thing and take care of the person. Yeah. Three know. months is over before you know it. Come on. Yeah. Right. You should probably put me on your sales team. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> hired. You're hired. Uh, uh, thank you so much for being on the Rider Flex podcast. Thank you. This was awesome. Thanks so much. You bet. If you think today's tip or guest interview can help someone you know, please share this with them. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to our channel and hit the like button. If you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to hit that little bell next to the subscribe button so you can be notified when we release a new episode. Our show features entrepreneurs, business executives, and the stories behind how they got there, as well as daily tips on career advice and job interviews. You can visit riderflex.com to learn more about us and get information on the recruiting and consulting services we provide. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.